the Bible tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. Right? Solomon said that. You can find it in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we know that it's true. But it doesn't always feel true. I mentioned last week that many of the challenges we are facing and the questions we are trying to answer are new. And in a sense, they are. But in another sense, they are old. At the root, there's not really anything new about them. Take as an example the way we think about and relate to smartphones and social media. In a sense, those things are new, and having to figure out how to handle them, those are new questions. But at the root, it's simply a question about how to faithfully incorporate technology into your life. And we know that when we think about technology, we know we think of electronic technology, but wheels are technology, right? A spade is technology. We've, all, we've always been having to figure out how to incorporate technology in our lives. And social media, new, difficult, different to manage, but it's really just a question about how do we communicate with others. It's a, it's a new format, but it's an old question. There's nothing new under the sun. So some of what we're dealing with today feels very new. But it isn't. Now the scope of the confusion that many are facing, the reach of the rebellion that we are seeing in regard to gender and sexuality in our culture might be new. Right? The scope, the reach might be new. But the problem is not new. In fact, a, a book written not that long ago dealing with some of these issues uh, even points out that in the Old Testament there's a law about men not dressing in women's clothing and vice versa. Right? The, the passage he's referring to is Deuteronomy 22.5 which says a woman shall not wear a man's garment nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, He's not quoting that, I don't think, and I'm not quoting that to say, see, there's an Old Testament law about it, problem solved. right? Because not all the laws in the Old Testament still apply to us the same way they did to Israel. right? And that's a whole other sermon. But I, I bring it up simply to say, this is not a new problem. Right? This is something that Moses had to address all the way back in Deuteronomy, thousands of years ago. So at some level, this is not a new question, but a very old question. And that same book points out that some of the same issues we are facing today existed in the Roman Empire in the early days of the church. And if you go back to Greek culture, which was dominant before Roman culture, the Greeks too had some serious problems with sexual immorality. What that means is this. The problem for us, is not that these issues are new. The problem for us is we are not used to living in a pagan empire. Many of us grew up in what felt more like Israel to us, more like God's country. And so part of the difficulty for us now is that we are exiles in something more like a pagan culture. 
we didn't realize that we were exiles in a pagan culture because we didn't have to move to be exiled. Exile came to us. We didn't move, but the culture around us did. Now the good news is that is not a reason to panic because Christians have been exiles before. In fact, we have always been exiles, even if we didn't always feel like it. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, which we read earlier, calls Christians exiles, not mainly because of where they are. Though they have been uh, dispersed, in a sense, throughout at least part of the Roman Empire at the time. He doesn't call them exiles mainly because of where they are. Instead, he calls them exiles mainly because of who they are. Many of those that Peter is speaking to in that letter were pagans before they became Christians. They are now the elect Exiles, Peter calls them, chosen by God to be his people, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, being built into a holy temple. They are Christians living in a pagan world. Just like us. Being in exile is not new for the church. It's not new for Christians. It may be a new feeling for us, but it is an old reality. Now, there's another sense in which our situation is not new. And this is something I want to to focus on this morning. There's an old heresy, an old false teaching called Gnosticism that goes all the way back to the early days of the church and even to the time of the apostles. And no one has to know what this heresy is or even what it's called to buy into it and repeat its mistakes, which many people are doing Today, Most people have never heard of it, but many people are embracing some of its core ideas. And I'm not, this is not an original thought for me. Somebody else has pointed this out well before me, but I want to draw your attention to it. Because understanding this old heresy, this old false teaching, recognizing its appearance and knowing where it went wrong and why it's wrong, and why the church rejected it, will help us respond to one of the most pressing questions of our time. And that is, what is man? What does it mean to be human? To answer that question, we need to turn this morning once again to the book of Genesis. I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 4 to 17. Our focus, though, is going to be on verse 7. Last week we looked at Genesis 1 and talked about what it means to be created and to be created in the image of God. This morning uh, we're going to look at how Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of the first man and how that helps us understand what it is, what it means to be a human being. So Genesis chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 4 and read to verse 17. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. 
and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, again, in Genesis chapter 1, we see sort of the the zoomed out picture of creation. God created the heavens and the earth, and it takes us through the, the days of creation where God was forming and crafting and populating the world that he had made with plants and animals and ultimately people. In Genesis 2, though uh, Moses zooms in on the creation of man in particular, uh, and in verse 7, it tells us that he created the man out of the dust. Right? He took the dirt of the ground and formed that into the first Man. That's why we say sometimes, like, we're dust. That's why you hear sometimes at funerals, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. That's what we were made from. When Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3 and uh, God confronts them and speaks to them in Genesis 3.19, one of the things God says to Adam is he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. And the Bible makes this really clear all throughout Scripture. I mean, Peter uh, was quoting from Isaiah earlier in 1 Peter 1, where he says that we're like grass, we're like flowers of the field, right? We are, we are impermanent, right? Our bodies are not immortal, right? They are made from the dust, and one day they will return to the dust. So he says, the Lord God formed the man of the dust, Uh, of dust from the ground, and then it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Think about how personal and uh, intimate, in a sense, this account of creation is. God does not create the man from a distance, as it were. He forms him from the dust and then breathes into him the breath of life. Why does Scripture tell us that God did that? Why did God do it that way? Remember that man is God's special creation, the only creature on the planet that is made in God's image and likeness. We're not like the animals. We're not like the plants. We are something different and distinct, something special to God, made in the image of God. 
So it's not surprising, shouldn't be surprising, that the way God fashioned us and created us is also special and significant and different as well. Now, you could uh, make the case that as God breathes the breath of life into this man and he becomes a living creature, you, you could make the case that this is the moment where God imparts to the first man his soul. Right? That part of us that is not material, that is not physical, right? that part of us that continues to exist even after the body dies. Now, whether that is what is meant to be understood here in this action or not is, is hard to be certain about. But what we do know from the rest of Scripture is that God did, whether in this moment or in some other way, God did impart to man a soul. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7 says, The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So God made us out of the dust, yes, but also gave us a spirit, a soul, that likewise returns to him. Zechariah 12, verse 1, says, Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. So even there, Zechariah is connecting God forming a spirit within us with the original creation, with founding the heavens and the earth. So what the Bible tells us then, quite plainly, is that part of what it means to be man, what it means to be human, is to have both a body and a soul. Not just a body, not just a soul, but both a body and a soul. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28 to his disciples, he says, Do not fear those who, can kill, who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Why? Because you're both. And if your body dies, your soul continues to exist. What's more important is what happens to both your body and your soul later. Right? So he goes on to say, um, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? What's, what matters is not what happens to your physical body right now, but what happens to your body and your soul later. Now, there are some Christians who think that man is made up of three parts, a body, a soul, and a spirit, with soul and spirit being different. There are a couple passages in the Bible that do seem to kind of lean that way, but uh, I, I think that's kind of over-interpreting some of that. And most Christians believe um, that man is just body and soul. But if you believe that we're three parts, that's, that doesn't really affect what we're talking about here. And There are some Christians who do hold that view. But what the Bible also is clear about Right, is that our body and soul are meant to be together, right? From the beginning, from creation, body and soul are meant to be together, and they are separated only at death. And that's not something that we want to happen. Um, do we want to be with the Lord? Yes. Do we want our body and soul to be separated? No. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, We know that while we are at home in the body, we, walk, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. He says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Well, 
If you're away from the body and at home with the Lord, what part of you is with the Lord? Your soul. Right? When your body dies and returns to the dust, if you're a Christian, your soul goes immediately into the presence of God. Now, do we want that? Paul says, yeah, we want to be at home with the Lord. But we want even more than that for our body and our soul to be in the presence of the Lord. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. But what we need to note right now is simply this. We believe, the Bible teaches, that death is our enemy. But that death is not the end. Our soul continues to exist, and not just to exist, but to live after our death. Our hope, our hope, not in the sense of like just a wish, like, oh man, I hope, don't you hope it rains soon? Don't you hope it gets cooler soon? That's just a hope. I got no confident expectation that that's happening anytime soon. But in scripture, hope is usually an expectation of something you know will happen. Our hope is that when we die, our soul will be in the presence of the Lord. And that's really good news. But there's even better news beyond that. We'll come back to it in just a little bit. So we're made by God in his image, body and soul. And being made, body and soul is good. That's good. Your body is good and your soul is good. The reason why we know that is because God himself, after he created everything, including the first man and the first woman, he said it was, or he saw that it was not just good, but very good. You might say, well, he says that at the end of Genesis 1, but in Genesis 1, it doesn't talk about bodies. It doesn't talk about bodies until Genesis 2. Well, but in Genesis 1, our, the creation of our bodies is implied because God says, I'm going to make man in my image, in our image, the male and the female. I'm going to make them both in our image and likeness. And I'm going to bless them, and they're going to be fruitful and multiply. Guess what? You've got to have a body to do that, right? So it's, it's there, right? So... Uh, we're made body and soul, and God says that that's good. It's good for us to exist as both body and soul. Now, it can also be good to exist only as spirit, right? Because that's how God exists. Uh, John four twenty four says that God is spirit. He doesn't have a body, right? Jesus took on a body, right? But he doesn't have one from eternity, right? And the Father doesn't have a body. The Spirit doesn't have a body, Right? It's good for God to exist as spirit, but that's not how God created us. Right? God created us body and soul, and God said that was good, and God even affirms the goodness of that. After our sin, right? after Adam and Eve fell, God didn't say, okay, you know what, forget the body thing. When you die, then I'll just save your soul, and we'll just we'll call it good. That'll be good enough. No, instead, he tells us that he is going to save us, he's going to redeem us and restore us, both body and soul. For example, in Romans 8.23, Paul says, we, talking about Christians, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
What he's talking about there is we are longing for the day when Christ will return and our bodies will be resurrected. Or if you're still alive when Jesus comes back, your body will be transformed, Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye. Our bodies are a part of God's work of salvation just like our souls are. God doesn't just save our souls and discard our bodies. He saves our bodies as well. And even the way he accomplished that tells us how important and significant our bodies are. How did Jesus save us? He left heaven and took on flesh and blood. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He became a man like one of us. He, he became truly human while remaining fully God. Why did he do that? So that he could save us. He had to die to save us, and to die he had to have a physical body. right? And the writer of Hebrews says it this way, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So in order to defeat our enemy, the devil, and to rescue us from slavery, Jesus took on flesh and blood like us, became as one of us, so that he might save us. And after he died, he also rose and ascended into heaven. And guess what? still has human body, even in heaven today. When the disciples watched Jesus, and Luke tells us this story in Acts 1, when the disciples watched Jesus ascend into heaven, he didn't drop his physical body on the way and just his spirit ascend. He still has his human body, his human nature. He took it upon himself in order to save us, and he kept it, and will always have it. And one day we'll physically return to the earth and we will have our physical bodies restored, resurrected. That's really good news. That's part of the gospel, right? That God has determined to save not only our bodies, but also our souls. That's why he sent Jesus That's why Jesus not only died, but also rose. That's why the Bible says there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth we're going to live. So if you're wondering, like, what is all this Christian stuff about? Like, what is all this Jesus stuff about? This is what it's about. It's about the fact that we know, we recognize our lives are broken. Some of that's because the world is broken. Some of that's because we're broken and we do sinful, foolish, rebellious things. Sometimes because we're confused, sometimes just because we're rebels. But even in the midst of all that, even though a good portion of that is our fault, right, as individuals, God still loves us, loved us enough for his son to come and become one of us so that he might save us, redeem us. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Now, all you have to do is, is turn to him. Trust him, right? Entrust yourself to Jesus. Ask him to save you, and the Bible says that he will. 
And again, that means he's going to save you wholly and completely, totally. All of who you are, he will redeem and cleanse and make holy. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that there's an old heresy, an old false teaching that many people are buying into that Christians rejected a long time ago that we need to understand in order to recognize what's going on and how we ought to respond to it. And part of why we need to understand it and respond to it and reject it is because if we begin to buy into this idea, this false teaching, it actually contradicts the gospel, the good news about what Jesus accomplished for us. So here's, Gnosticism was a complicated, varied thing, but here's some of the basics that are easy to get our minds around and that are very significant. And I think once I mention them, you'll, you'll go, oh, yeah, that is what's happening right now. One of the core beliefs of those who ascribed to Gnosticism was they, that they, they believed the material world was evil. You might say, well, that doesn't sound like us because we're, we're way into materialism, right? We love stuff. We love the material world. And we do. And that, you know, is another problem uh, sometimes the way we respond to that. But think about it like this. The, they not only believed that the material world, including our physical bodies, were evil, but they also thought of our spirit as the, the only, the, the really good part of us, uh, maybe even the divine part of us. And they believed that our spirit was imprisoned in our flesh. So who we really are, the good part of us, is trapped inside this messed up body. And so our goal then is to get out of the body, right? To get free from this prison of a body that is not reflecting who I really am, because who I really am, what's good about me, is the spirit inside of me. Now we can see hints of this in, even in the time of the apostles, uh, because John, in 1 John 4, he writes about people who reject the idea that Jesus came in the flesh. He says, those guys are false prophets, false teachers. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, how do you recognize them? John says, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, why would somebody not be willing to confess that Jesus came in the flesh? Well, John doesn't tell us, but knowing what we know about Gnosticism and how it developed and whatnot, it's, it's not hard to put the pieces together either. If you believe that the material, physical world and your body in particular was evil and bad, and salvation meant escaping that material, physical body, then why would your God and Savior take on a body and join you in prison. That doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't that defile him? These bodies are bad. Why would he do that? So they didn't believe that Jesus had really truly taken on a physical human body. But here's the problem with that. If Jesus didn't really take on flesh and blood, what else did he not do? He didn't die. He didn't rise. 
which means he didn't save us. So that's why John says, this is not just a disagreement among Christians. These are false prophets. These are false teachings that you need to reject. Now, that false teaching about the material being evil and the spirit only being good is, I think, one of the challenges that is facing us today. It's a, we have a new twist on this old error. Right, that many are rejecting the body as bad. They're rejecting their bodies as incompatible with who they are. They see their bodies as something they are trapped in that do not reflect who they really are. The new twist is, because of the time and place that we live in, because of the advances in technology that we have, instead of seeking freedom from the body, now the body can be refashioned into whatever we desire, whatever we think reflects who we really are on the inside. And when you combine the technology and the medicine and stuff that makes that possible with a culture of you know, performance and, um, and you know, self-identity and all these things that we, we uh, and you know, all of us I think are guilty, or most of us at least guilty of this at some level, through which we perform Right and present ourselves through social media. Like, when you put all that stuff together, you have an explosive combination that not only magnifies confusion, but also gives some a sense of compulsion to pursue a radical rejection of the body in order to be truly you. That's what's going on. So what do we do about that? Well, one of the things we need to do is recognize that the problem at the root is the rejection of the goodness of the body that God has given us. Now, is the body affected by the fall? Yes, absolutely. We'll come back to that in a later sermon. There are all kinds of problems that do need to be addressed with our bodies. But the idea that your body is a prison that your body is somehow contrary to who you are is a rejection of the Christian understanding not only of the body but of what it means to be human. God has made very clear that He is the fashioner of our bodies and He made them good. And yes, they are affected by the fall, but He will also redeem them. And the reason it's important to understand all this is because if we get the problem wrong, we get the solution wrong too. If we think the problem is the body, then we might think that certain drugs or therapies or surgeries might save us by bringing our body into line with who we think we really are. But if that's not the problem, then our attempt at salvation will ultimately disappoint us and probably lead us to despair. For many, that is already happening. If instead, though, the problem is that we have been separated from God by our sin, body and soul, then the only thing that can save us is to be restored body and soul to fellowship with God. 
That requires our repentance toward God and faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who took to Himself true and full humanity. Again, body and soul, so that He might bring us to God, body and soul, in the new creation. So here's the good news. The challenges we're facing, both old and new. The answers we need are old. They're there in Scripture. And for those who have been led astray by the lies and false teaching and confusion that is spread uh, throughout our culture, we've got good news for them. We've got good news for them because we know the one who is able to redeem and restore both our bodies and our souls. We know what he went through to do it. And we know that he is willing to receive every single person who will turn to him and call upon him. As the scripture says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray.